Hear now God's holy word as we continue our study in Matthew's gospel. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are an offense to me for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works." Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we ask you that our time in it today would be fruitful, that you would deliver us from every distraction, that you would deliver us from every error, that you would guide our hearts into truth, give me strength and courage and articulate speech to communicate these things clearly. Fill me with your spirit and open all of our ears to hear it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Have you seen the internet uh, video, came out a couple of years ago, uh, about the experiment with the backwards bicycle? It was an invention and a fun little physics experiment performed by a Christian YouTuber. I think he's a Christian, uh, Destin Sandlin. And what makes the backwards bicycle backwards is that uh, it's engineered in such a way that when you turn the handlebars to the left, the front wheel goes to the right. When you turn the uh, handlebars to the right, the front wheel goes to the left. And uh, it goes in the, uh, the, the front wheel goes in the opposite direction from which you turn the handlebars. And everyone who tries to ride it, everybody falls off. It seems simple enough conceptually. You would think you could tell yourself, well, if I want to go left, then I turn the wheel, uh, the, the handlebars to the right. Um, but it isn't that easy because, in fact, when we learn to ride a bike, we learn all kinds of little balancing movements that we don't even think about. There are things that we have just internalized that we just do. And, and one of the most important things that you do when riding a bike is that if you go to take a left turn, you don't know this and, and you don't notice it, but you do a little right turn, which sends the bike slightly off balance that you correct by turning left. If you want to turn right, you turn, the, you turn the handlebars just a little bit to the left. You create this imbalance, which you correct by turning to the right. You don't think about that, but when you learn uh, to ride the bike, you just did that, and that's how, you, that's how you turned the bike. That's how it works on a normal bike. But if you reverse all that uh, and you turn it backwards, your brain has a difficult time compensating. And so uh, this uh, experimenter, this a uh, guy who made the video, he had to ride the bike every day for eight months before he could rewire his brain to be able to steer the bike correctly. And then when he tried to get on a conventional bike, he couldn't ride it. His brain had been rewritten. He'd replaced the old algorithm in his brain with a new one, and he had to relearn how to ride a bike properly. There's a similar story from the early days of NASA when they were researching how astronauts might function in a weightless environment where there's no up or down. 
And so they had a group of astronauts wear these special convex goggles that flipped uh, uh, their vision 180 degrees on a horizontal, I'm sorry, a vertical axis. So, so basically inverting their world. When they looked around, they saw everything upside down. And they wore these goggles for 24 hours a day for 30 days. The first couple of weeks of wearing these goggles was disorienting and stressful. They had constant vertigo. Several of them had high blood pressure. They even had digestive issues. But 26 days into the experience, something clicked. And one of the astronauts started to see everything right side up again. Even though the uh, vision and the light coming into his eyes was turned upside down, his brain reoriented and he could see upside right. And then over the next few days, all the other astronauts experienced the same thing. Their brains created fresh ways of interpreting the information that their eyes were taking in. Now, these stories and these kinds of experiments fascinate me because they speak to the amazing capacity that God has given the human brain to learn and to adapt, but it also speaks to the power of habit, which which I like to call the power of liturgy, right? Liturgy is just a, is just a set of habits. Uh, this, this power of liturgy that trains your mind in a real way that we can rewire our mind to act and think and behave in a different way. So repeated acts, repeated habits train us, and they train not only our bodies, but our heads and our hearts. And the process of change is not simply thinking certain thoughts, but engaging our bodies in new routines, new habits which affect us from the outside in, that really change the way that we see uh, reality and act in it. And the other interesting uh, result of that uh, vision experiment is that um, it, it reinforces that commonly held understanding that we need about 30 days of bodily discipline in a particular direction, not only to create new habits, but even we, we can create new desires and new ways of thinking, new ways of responding subconsciously and new ways, new ways of seeing. In Matthew 16, Jesus has pulled his disciples away from their homes, away from the country that they grew up in, away from the people and the routines that they knew and familiar with, and in order to, pulls them away in order to actively train them in a new way of seeing the world. He is not going to be flipping the world upside down or reprogramming them to see left is right or right is left because they're already living in an upside down world where good is evil and evil is good. They already live in a world that's bent out of shape and his work is to bring them out of that, to teach them a new way to guide them to unlearn the things that they learned in upside down world so they can walk upright in the real world, which means to see the world as it really is, to see the world through heaven's eyes, to live with heaven's priorities, to, to be on heaven's agenda, and to inhabit that reality that's built around Jesus as king. In heaven, whatever God says happens. Uh, the, God tells his angels to go do a thing, and they go do a thing. And everything runs according to the word of God. And, and the work of the gospel is to bring earth into conformity with heaven. And so in order to do that, Jesus pulls his men away to reorient them around these truths. Let's remember where we are in Matthew's gospel. 
Jesus has spent the majority of his time, to this point in Matthew's gospel, the majority of his time up in the small towns around Galilee among the working class people. He's been healing, he's been teaching, he's fed them. And a couple chapters ago, a posse of religious and legal scholars were dispatched from the big city of Jerusalem. They were sent out to examine Jesus and to test his orthodoxy. They were just coming out to see if he's following the traditions. They've heard of him and they wonder what this is all about. Well, Jesus deals with these critics. He uh, rebukes them. He then pulls away. He retreats from these interactions so that he can spend more time with his men. His job at this point in the gospel is to prepare them for what is about to happen when they get down to Jerusalem. So Jesus goes out to Gentile territory with his men. He goes out for a while, he comes back in briefly, and then he heads back north all the way up to Caesarea Philippi, which we looked at last time. Caesarea Philippi is that city at the base of Mount Hermon, it's at the headwaters of the Jordan River. It's a city uh, famous for its temple dedicated to the worship of Caesar. There are several other pagan shrines in the area. And it's here against this backdrop of paganism and Caesar worship that Jesus asks his disciples, who do men say that I am and who do you say that I am? And when Peter confesses, when Peter answers that question, well, yeah, you are the Christ. You are the anointed one. You are the son of the living God. Jesus responds to that confession and says, uh, upon that confession and with the people who make that kind of confession, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He says to his men, I'm gonna give you the keys. I'm gonna give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. You're gonna have authority to bind and to loose. And so in just those few words, he communicates to these men, again, against this backdrop of paganism and, and, and Caesar worship, he communicates to them that he is king and he is the son of Yahweh and that his kingdom will be victorious. His kingdom will increase unabated and that it will stand and that these 12 friends who are with him will participate in this kingdom and they will operate with all the authority of the king because they'll have the keys of the kingdom. Now, if they just let that settle in and they think about that, they might have started thinking about parades and thrones and crowns and all kinds of fame and influence and fancy dinners. We're never gonna have to worry about money again. We're never going to have to put up with opposition again. They hear the words of Jesus and they have to start thinking that life is about to get really good. But Jesus doesn't stop there. In the very next verse, in verse 20 of chapter 16, after he uh, tells them that he's gonna give them the keys of the kingdom of heaven, that the gates of hell are not gonna prevail against the church, in verse 20, he, he commands his disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Well, that's an odd strategy. Why would we want to sit on this? We're gonna keep this to ourselves a little bit longer. That's, that's strange. The, the, uh, the idea that, that we're not going to get started right away is, uh, is a little off-putting. But Jesus says this because he knows his time is limited. He's controlling who knows what until 
uh, his time un until he's ready to provoke his enemies into the final showdown in Jerusalem. That's why Jesus says this. Why Jesus says, don't tell anybody right now. However, if you're an apostle, you might be somewhat more eager and ready to get on to this victorious conquest that he's talking about. But then he has more curious things to say about what's gonna happen when they get to Jerusalem. Verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. This comes across as a much different plan from what they might have been expecting. Jesus says, I'm gonna go to Jerusalem. When I get there, uh, I'm gonna suffer. I'm gonna be rejected by all of the authorities, by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. Nobody's gonna accept me. They're all gonna oppose me and I'm going to be killed. And they all know what that means. There's, there's one kind of execution that is prominent in the land at the time for people who do things like Jesus is doing, which is to oppose these authorities. The path that they are on is going to lead to a cross and a grave. Jesus adds, there's gonna be resurrection, but they're famously gonna forget that part. On the day of the resurrection, nobody remembers that he says this at, at first. And, and they seem to not even understand what he's saying here. It's as if it's too big of a truth for them to even fit in their heads at this point. But they do get stuck on the suffering and the dying part. That's where, that's where they focus their attention. Now, again, put yourself in the mind of the apostles. This doesn't make sense at all. I thought the gates of hell were not going to prevail against our mission Jesus, I thought you were gonna build your church and things were gonna keep getting better and better. This is super confusing because if Jesus is really king, what's all this suffering and dying? Messiah doesn't die. Messiah kicks out the Romans. Messiah deals with the Herods and, and embarrasses them and he reigns as king. So we, we see how they receive this because Peter speaks up. They don't understand at all what Jesus is saying and, and so Peter must have thought Jesus had lost his mind or that Jesus was severely confused. In verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And you think the gall that Peter would rebuke Jesus. He began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Uh, literally, uh, Peter caught hold of Jesus. Uh, Peter, Peter grabbed him. He flung his arm around him and he, he pulled him aside just as you might uh, grab a 10-year-old who's acting up or somebody who's out of his mind. You grab him and you pull him aside just to keep him from embarrassing you anymore. Uh, Peter flung his arm around him um, to pull him over and, and Peter gets in Jesus' face and he rebukes him. What are you thinking? You can't do this. You can't say this. This is not a plan for success. This is not gonna work and we are not going to let this happen to you. This is not what we're doing. This is not what we signed up for. Knock off this crazy talk, Jesus. You can imagine that Peter is speaking out of fear. What, what is his motive here? Why, why is he so agitated at what Jesus says? Well, because Peter has seen men carrying crosses to their death. Peter has seen men dying of asphyxiation and exposure on a cross. He cannot abide the thought that that's gonna be Jesus or himself or his friends that they would end up on crosses. 
not if they can avoid it. And he's gonna do everything he can to avoid it. And now it's unthinkable that Jesus is planning on it. Jesus is going there deliberately and saying this is what's gonna happen. The thought is absolutely terrifying. And I can sympathize a great deal with Peter. That would be shocking and terrifying. Now, how did Jesus respond to this rebuke by Peter? Now, as you listen again to Jesus' words, think, what was the tone of, of Jesus? What did Jesus' response sound like in verse 23? He turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Obviously, certainly, there is a sharpness, there is a directness to, uh, to, to Jesus' words here, but there also must be pain and grief. Just six verses before this, in the section we studied last time, Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. You are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Just six verses before this, Jesus was praising him and trusting him and rejoicing over his faith. And now Jesus, just a few moments later, is calling this very same Peter, Satan. Why? What did Peter say to provoke this? In Peter's rebuke of Jesus, Peter is implying that there is some other way to please the Father than by the way of the cross. There's some other way of building up the kingdom than by suffering. There's gotta be a shortcut. There has to be some cheat, some trick, some hack, some way to glory that doesn't require suffering. Come on, Jesus, we can think about this. We can get creative. Let's talk about it. And, and in this, Jesus recognizes in Peter the very same tendencies that Satan exhibited and tempted Jesus with in the wilderness. When, when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, all the temptations that were offered to him were shortcuts. They were all an attempt to get around ordinary means, ordinary work, and to grasp at fame and protection and food apart from obedience to the Father. To get blessing and life and food and glory apart from obedience to the Father. That was everything that Satan offered Jesus in the wilderness. Satan says, just worship me. Just, just give me a little worship. Bow down to me and you can have all the kingdoms of the earth. There's no way to go, uh, no need to go the way of the cross. And that same shortcutting impulse is driving Peter here. That's why Jesus calls him Satan. And that's not an overstatement why Jesus says this. Because what Peter is suggesting here is the same message that Satan whispered to Jesus in the wilderness. And here Jesus is coming down the home stretch. He's about to head to Jerusalem. And this is the last thing he wants to hear, the last thing he needs to hear, not from a friend, not from a friend to whom he's just disclosed the will of the Father. Now, when Jesus began to show the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things, what Bible texts might he have unpacked and exegeted for them as he told them that? We could list any number of them. Did he talk about the ram that God provided Abraham and Isaac? 
did, did he go to Isaiah and, and talk about the suffering servant who must be wounded for our transgressions and bruised of our, uh, for our iniquities? This is everything that God has revealed about who Messiah is and what he does. And certainly Jesus communicates that to the disciples, but everything that God has revealed through his word and through his son about the way of obedience for Messiah through suffering and sacrifice, everything that Jesus has communicated about this, Peter, in just a few words, Peter rejects. He said, nope, we're not gonna do that. That's not the way we're gonna go. It must not be this way. This shall not happen to you, Peter, Peter says. And that's why it's so painful. And that's why Jesus calls him Satan because Peter's perspective is satanic. His desires are satanic. Peter's theology at this point, his Christology, his view of the Messiah is satanic. I grew up in the fundamentalist world, like some of you, where everything we didn't like was satanic. Anything that we thought was weird or different, we said, well, that's satanic. We looked for demons in everything, from rock music to comic books to uh, role-playing games. And no doubt, there's plenty of nonsense and there's very unhelpful stuff and rebellious stuff to be found all over those things. But the heart of Satanism, real Satanism, is expressed in Peter's rebuke of Jesus. The principal tenet of Satanism is self-preservation, self-glorification, self-satisfaction by any means necessary, especially if that means doing the thing that God has prohibited, especially if that means getting what you want by disobeying God's law. And that's the thing Satan tempted Adam and Eve with, disobey God and get the shortcut to knowledge and dominion. It's what he tempted Jesus with in the wilderness. And that is Satan's principal maneuver throughout all time. This is the satanic lie. Here it is, that there is a way to glory there is a way to life and blessing that comes by fulfilling your lusts, by satisfying your need for comfort and safety, and openly rejecting what God has said. And this is the lie that Jesus has to steal himself against. As he is about to go through the most self-sacrificial act in all of human history, he has to steal himself against this lie, and that lie is coming from the mouth of a friend. That's why Jesus calls Peter Satan in that moment. Peter's counsel is satanic. Peter sounds just like Satan. But after saying that, Jesus doesn't leave Peter there. He doesn't leave him twisting in the wind. He offers him an alternative. He says in verse 24, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Peter, you can do what I'm doing. Peter, um, you're going to follow me through this if you're my disciple. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? If you're going to stay with me, Jesus says, this is how we're going to do it. This is the way it's going to go. As I obey my Father, I am going to go through hostility and suffering, and torment, and death. And those who follow me, Jesus says, along the path of obedience to the Father can expect the very same thing. And this isn't suffering for the sake of suffering. This is what happens when light confronts darkness, when life comes into contact with death, 
when life comes into contact with death and the world of light comes into contact with the world of darkness, there is conflict. There is always tension and opposition. The world is twisted and bent. The world is upside down and inside out. And if you are going to join Jesus in the work of setting the world upright again, it's going to be painful. You are going to have to endure the violence and the hostility of those who like it the way that it is. There are, there are those whose entire livelihood is based in keeping things the way that they are. And, and not only are you going to have to endure opposition, but it's painful to bend yourself out of conformity to the orientation of the world. It's hard to change. It's hard to go against the way you've been taught to think your whole life. As we've all been fed on a steady satanic diet of, of satanic teaching all of our lives, this lie that we can have blessing in life apart from obedience to God. And so if you're gonna walk upright, if you're gonna learn the habits of, of living in the upside right world, there are things you're gonna have to let go of. There are things that are gonna have to die. There are lusts of the flesh that are gonna have to be crucified. And, and then when you do that, there, are, there will be ridicule and rejection and persecution coming from those who are happy living in upside down world. Because, because the world is perverse, when you walk upright, when you walk straight, you're gonna look crooked. You're gonna look backwards. You're gonna look upside down because the world is upside down. You look upside down in it when you look, when you walk upright. When you, when you contort yourself away from the way of death, it makes everyone else uncomfortable. Everyone else sees you and says, who do you think you are? What do you think you're doing? What's wrong with how I'm living? Are you judging me? by doing the thing that you're doing? How often have you heard that? Oh, oh, I see what you're doing with your family. Does that mean you're judging me? Well, not necessarily. I'm just trying to obey the Lord. So Jesus warns here that anyone who wants to go through this cosmic upheaval with him and come out to resurrection on the other side, you're gonna have to be turned inside out. You're gonna have to be turned upside down. Jesus says it in these words. He says, in order to save your life, you're gonna have to lose it. There's a paradox here. The way to save your life is to give it up. And there's a way to lose your life by trying to save it because you have life not just to keep it for yourself, not to reserve it for yourself. You have, you have life in order to spend it, to, to give it freely. And this goes for all of our gifts. If you're gonna keep your wealth and your treasure and your riches, if you're gonna keep it, you gotta give it up. You gotta use it in service. In, in this economy of the kingdom of heaven, it's only what you give up that you get to keep. If, if you wanna save your kids and wanna save your family, you have to give them up. You have to give them up to God. But there is a way to lose them by trying to save them yourself, by teaching them that they belong to themselves, by teaching them that they exist to serve themselves. They're free to do what they wanna do, be whoever they wanna be, be whatever they wanna be, regardless of what God says. You see, teaching them to preserve themselves by themselves, you think that's how we keep them, but that's not. That's how you lose them. Uh, you only get to keep what you give away. And, and so, so whatever you fret over, whatever you obsess over, whatever you devote yourself to and pursue in an idolatrous way, you lose in this economy of the kingdom of heaven. If you wanna preserve your life, 
you have to give it up. And this is the message. Jesus describes this way to his disciples, this way of life. He talks about uh, taking up your cross. Following Jesus to the world looks like a death sentence. Why would anybody want to do that? Why would anyone want to de dedicate their life to following Jesus? Why would anybody want to live their life by the dictates of a 2,000 plus year old book? Why would anybody want to follow God's precepts? Why would you want to do, it looks like a death sentence. It looks like you're throwing your life away. It looks like you're, you're giving up all of your opportunity. Well, Jesus says, yeah, that's what it looks like. It looks to the world like a death sentence. Um, the disciples had seen themselves. They'd seen plenty of people take up the cross and they know what that means when Jesus says this. They knew what it meant when a man from one of their towns uh, carried a cross on his shoulder and went off with a little group of soldiers. He, they knew what happened there. That was a one-way trip. He's not coming back. Taking up the cross means committing fully to this direction that Jesus is leading. So in, in that day, when Jesus talks about taking up your cross, he's not talking about some little irritation or inconvenience. Taking up your cross or the cross itself was not a metaphor for a, just a bad day. We hear Christians talk about the crosses they have to bear. This is my cross to bear. And it's either putting up with a difficult spouse or living with a chronic illness or waiting in line too long at the post office or, or maybe Amazon losing your package. That's the cross you have to bear today. But Jesus isn't talking about some unavoidable trial that you just must passively submit to. This is an identity that he calls us to take on, the identity of cross bearer. That this is an identity that we embrace. This is something we actively take a hold of. A man who took up his cross was a dead man. He counted himself dead. It was over for him. And so what Jesus is calling his disciples to do is to die to this old world, die to the old ways, and join him in this march to Calvary, which means dying to yourself, dying to whatever plans and dreams and desires you have apart from Christ. Uh, redefining your entire existence in terms of who Jesus is and what, what he has said. Jesus says it's not something you just do one time and then get it out of your system, get it out of the way. When Luke quotes Jesus here, uh, Luke says, uh, Jesus said, take up your cross daily. So it's not something you do once and, and you cross it off the list, you get some kind of spiritual charge out of it, and you say, well, I did that thing, I'm done carrying it. This process is never finished. So how do we do this practically? Where do we begin to follow Jesus? Where do we begin to carry the cross as Jesus describes it here? The most difficult step in the process is the first thing Jesus says. What does he say first? He says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. The first step is that you must deny yourself. This is difficult because we are imminently selfish. But if you're gonna be a disciple of Jesus, you must learn to tell yourself no. And we begin, we begin with saying no to sin. If you can never say no to sin, you'll never say no to other good things that you may have to give up in order to serve Jesus. You may have to sacrifice some good things to follow Jesus, but if we don't first say no to sin, we'll never pass those tests. Now, you may be called one day to, be, uh, to, to give up a promotion or give up a job or or, or give up your reputation for the name of Jesus, but you won't be prepared to do well in that day unless 
you start winning some of the smaller battles today. So we must exercise ourselves to train ourselves in saying no, in denying ourselves, saying no to our lusts, saying no to our sinful habits, no to our laziness, no to our wastefulness, no to the desires that consume us, no to our sinful anger, saying no to all the ways that we justify our bitterness, why we won't let something go and why we won't forgive. We say no to all the ways we justify our hatefulness and our impatience and our disrespect. If you can't say no to yourself, how will you ever say no to a tyrant or a persecutor in the day of, of persecution? We, we all think that we would make these really excellent martyrs, right? We always kind of, you kind of run that scenario. If the Chinese government ever made me deny Jesus, I would go to the gallows singing the Psalms. You know, if the Taliban ever, ever told me that they were going to execute me, I would not deny the name of Jesus. But that whole imaginary scenario is a farce. It's a joke. When we constantly deny the name of Jesus every day by failing to control our wicked tongue and our lustful thoughts and our raging emotions, there's a tribunal every day. You're put to the test every time you face temptation. And the question is there, are you going to obey Jesus? Are you going to stand up and be a Christian and carry your cross with Christ in this moment of temptation? Or are you just effectively a practical atheist who hates God's law? You hate his son. You hate his demands on your life. And, and you say, yeah, it's not really a big deal. I'm fine. I'm fine with sinning. We have to pass that test first. This is why it's good to fast. Jesus commends fasting. It's good to take a break from things that consume us. It's good to, it's good to fast, especially from food, because fasting teaches us that we can control our appetites. You can, you can do it. You can say no to your appetites. You can say no to your desires because we all have this toddler inside of us who acts like it's never been told no. That every time we say no, there's this internal toddler that throws a fit when it doesn't get what it wants. And it whines and it throws itself on the floor and screams in Walmart. And that toddler must be disciplined. A toddler must be brought under control. So we deny ourselves by saying no. We say no to ourselves and we learn and we practice by force of habit how to say no to ourselves. Denying ourselves, then building on that means to live in a way that looks out for the real needs of other people before we meet our own. That we learn how to defer our own comforts and safety and preferences for the good of our family, for the good of the brethren. When there's a just cause, we do this for the good of our countrymen, always in every way for the advancement of the kingdom and for the name of Jesus. That we defer our liberty for the weaker brother. We, we seek the good of others before we seek the good of ourselves. And, and, and in our relationships to our neighbors and to our brothers, we, we ask, have, have I failed to defer? Have I, have I failed to deny myself? Usually in those showdowns and use those conflicts, we wait for the other person to deny themselves first. We wait for them to give up first and then, and then maybe we'll give in a little bit. But the question we ask is, how do I, how do I start? How do I initiate? How, must, how am I being called now in this conflict with my brother to deny myself and to, and to live sacrificially, live a cruciform life for my brother? 
Denying ourselves means orienting our lives around the real needs of our neighbor. And this, is, this needs some explanation because it's so corrupted and so abused. Love your neighbor has been so weaponized in our day. We need to understand that my duties to my neighbor, my duties to my, my brethren, my duties to my family are clearly defined by God's law, right? I mean, so it's not always their felt needs that I'm looking to deny myself to meet, but their real needs, uh, not, not their feelings, but respecting their lives, respecting covenantal boundaries. It's what the Ten Commandments are all about, right? Don't commit adultery. Respect covenantal boundaries. Respect their reputation. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Respecting their property. Don't steal. Humbling myself in such a way that I care not about the substance of my life above all things, but I care about the substance of my brother's life. This is all revolutionary in a self-centered world. In this generation especially, we have this innate selfishness where everyone seems to think they're the star of their own movie. It's very difficult for folks to see things from a different viewpoint or to look at things from a different angle, which is why Paul lists lovers of them, their, their own selves. Among that list of sins, he, he gives Timothy. Uh, selfishness is only increasing in this climate where we have no sense of connection or community or covenant. Um, I read this last week. Something like 50 per, uh, 55% of millennials have no plans to have children. And the number one reason that they don't want children is so they can have more time to focus on themselves, to do what they want to do, to travel and spend money on things other than children. We are intensely selfish and inward focused. And what facade there is of care for others, what facade there is of love for neighbor is in fact guilt manipulated social engineering. They, they don't wanna love you. They're not gonna modify their own behavior to make you more comfortable or to obey God. They're not gonna correct themselves to care about you. They're telling you to love your neighbor, to modify your behavior to accept all manner of insanity and wickedness. And that's not what God calls us to do. To be clear, loving your neighbor and denying yourself does not require you to enter into somebody else's fantasy world, but to take up your cross and love them the way Jesus loved them. How does Jesus love sinners? Well, Jesus loves sinners by loving them so much he's willing to tell them about the reality of their sin. Jesus loves sinners so much that he's willing to tell them about the deliverance that he offers to them. Jesus loves sinners so much to, that he's willing to lay down his life when they hate him for that. Paul articulates this all so much more clearly than I can, but this is the way of the cross. But Philippians 2, uh, you all know this, but hear it again in this context, where Paul tells the Philippians, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being in, found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So, so in this, in, in imitating Jesus, we are training ourselves in a new way to walk upright in an upside down world. 
where we deny ourselves and we, can, we demonstrate. You can say no to yourself. We can say no to sin. We deny ourselves by deferring our comforts for the needs of our brethren, esteeming others more highly than ourselves. And that's preparation for the real moment of truth that may come when we must lay down our lives and our livelihoods for the reputation and the name of Jesus. That day may come where we'll have to stand on principle and say, I'm not going to do that. No, I'm not going to say that. I'm not going there. I don't care what you want. Do what you want to me. To do that is to disobey God. And by the way, I fear God more than I fear you. I fear more disobeying and displeasing God than I fear displeasing you. And the good news is the reward for doing that is far greater than anything you could ever lose temporarily. As Jesus says, for the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and he will reward each according to his works. He says that right after he says, take up your cross. So if you suffer with Jesus, if you go to the cross with Jesus, you get the resurrection and the life and the glory on the other side. This is hard work. This is so hard. It's, it's easy to just file it away and to say, I, I can't think about that right now. I've got to think about that later because I can't, I, I honestly, th this is hard. It is hard. There are no easy shortcuts. Uh, this requires you to put on new glasses in order to live in a world that's upside down, in a world that, uh, that you have to steer left to go right. Um, it would be very simplistic for me to say, you know, whatever you're told by this culture, just do the opposite. Just whatever you're told, just do that. Whatever, whatever you're told to believe, believe the opposite. That would be super simple to say, and I bet you'd get about a 75% return on that. Uh, but, but it's not that simple. But it is, it is true that when wicked men are promoting a thing or saying a thing, you pretty much have to go in the opposite direction if you're going to be faithful and do the thing that pulls you out of the world of death and darkness that inverts the world for you to see it as it really is. And remember, you aren't doing this by yourself. You aren't brute forcing this carrying a cross and denying yourself in your own strength. You're doing this because you follow a Savior who's already done this. He has already flipped everything around with his death and resurrection. And you are following him in his strength. And you can do it because you have his spirit and you have his mercy along the way. This is the way of life. This is the way of great reward. This is the way that pleased the Father when Jesus did it. It's the way that pleases the Father when you follow him. Let's give thanks. Father in heaven, we ask for your spirit that we might obey Jesus on this point, that we might learn how to deny ourselves, to say no to sin, to defer our comforts for the real needs of the brethren, to, to follow Jesus, as it were, into all of the tough decisions and the tough stances that we may be called to take. Father, we can't do this apart from your spirit, and we need you. And so we ask you to strengthen us and fill us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.